Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priest and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asked, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also rose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones. Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bat. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, that he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, he replied. This is God's word. You may be seated. In Luke 22, as you just saw in the text, we're right on the cusp of what's known as the Passion of Christ. Now, the Passion of Christ, it typically refers to the time in which Jesus suffered, beginning in the garden, all the way, of course, up to the point of his death on the cross. Luke 22 records the events of what's known today as Maundy Thursday, which is the day before Good Friday, or the day before Jesus would be handed over 
flogged, put on trial, and then, of course, murdered in public. What we see in Luke 22 is what's known as the upper room discourse. The time, the final moments before in Jesus' life, the, the relative calm before the storm, in which Jesus seizes the opportunity, seizes this precious moment to invest and build up into his disciples, and speak truth into their lives one more time before all the chaos would ensue, beginning in the garden. But in this calm, even though the things are relatively stable, more or less, we see, and I hope you were able to sense palpably, Jesus' dread and terror building in this text. For example, in John chapter 12, verse 27, soon after Jesus entered Jerusalem on the donkey, recall that as Palm Sunday, soon after that, Jesus said, when he, right there in the, in the centerpiece of it all, where it all would unfold, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. In Luke 22, as in John, as he expressed, my soul is troubled. I feel trouble. I feel terror ahead of me. In Luke 22, what we see are three big elements of darkness that are overshadowing Jesus or that are facing Jesus that he's going to encounter right around the corner. Now, of course, we know this as the Last Supper account, and we're going to unpack that next week in more detail and tie that in with the Passover and what all of that means. But before Jesus does that, and in the midst of Jesus doing that, what we see is three big elements of darkness weighing heavy upon his soul. Because as you see in the text, or as you saw there, Jesus was aware of all of these three big components. What are they? Jesus' own crucifixion, the betrayal by Judas, and the denial by Peter. And this is the main point today. Though Jesus faced these weighing pressures, he did not back away he did not give up, and instead, he kept pursuing his own people. He kept investing into his followers, into his disciples, even though he faced hardship right around the corner. Or in other words, in the face of overwhelming darkness, Jesus remained committed to loving and serving his people. In the midst of overwhelming darkness, Jesus remained committed to loving and serving his people. So today, the main emphasis is not on what do I need to do? What's the command? What's the action I can do when I get home today? That's not the main point. Today, the main emphasis is this. I hope that you and I can see how Jesus passionately pursues us, even though there's a huge cost ahead of him. Ahead of him. So for you and I to, to rejoice, to enjoy, to glory in Jesus' passionate pursuit of us, to, to understand that you and I need to unpack and walk through those three big elements of darkness that are plaguing Jesus. Number one, his crucifixion. Number two, the betrayal by Judas. And number three, the denial by Peter. So firstly, his own crucifixion. We see this in verses one and two, but also in verse 37. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. In verse 2, we, we hear immediately what's going on. 
the chief priest and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Now, throughout Jesus' public ministry, as he walked around the region of Judea, preaching the kingdom, preaching the gospel, preaching the good news, while Jesus amassed many followers who loved him, who adored him, who wanted to be close to him relationally, but also receive that mercy, at the exact same time, Jesus conjured up many enemies. Just as there were followers, many people, uh, their hatred and their agitation towards him increased every passing day. Every bold statement Jesus made, how he came to bring in the kingdom, how he is the son of God in human flesh, many of the religious leaders had a huge agitation and animosity building up against him. And of course, as we get towards the end of each gospel, that hatred becomes more crystallized. Because we see in verse 2, the chief priest and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. Now, this isn't just talking about getting him out of the region. As Matthew 26, 4 says, they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. So right here, we see the very seeds of the crucifixion, which we'll unpack in a couple of weeks. But I hope you understand here, this isn't just external plotting. This isn't just things going on out here. Jesus knows what's going on in the hearts of these people. He is God himself. He is human, truly, fully human, but he is also truly, fully God, and he knows all things. As verse 37 says, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. This is Jesus speaking. It's written, he was numbered with the transgressor, transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Now, what are they plotting? What's in store for Jesus? The crucifixion. And lest we overlook or belittle what that word means and what the cross represents up there that we see every single week, I'm going to read this one little lengthier quote from one scholar about what crucifixion is, but hopefully it'll help get your mind into what Jesus knows awaits him. So the crucifixion Quote, represented the acme of the torturer's art. Atrocious physical sufferings, length of torment, ignominy, the effect of the crowd gathering to witness the long agony of the crucified. Nothing could be more horrible than the sight of this living body. Breathing, seeing, hearing, still able to feel, and yet reduced to the state of a corpse by force immobility and absolute helplessness. We cannot ever say the crucified person writhed in agony, for it was impossible for him to move. Stripped of his clothing, unable even to brush away the flies that fell upon his wounded flesh, already lacerated by the, by the preliminary scouring, exposed to the insults and curses of the people who can always find some sickening pleasure in the sight of the tortures of others feeling which is increased and not diminished by the sight of pain. The cross represented miserable humanity reduced to the last degree of impotence, suffering, and degradation. The penalty of crucifixion combined all that the most ardent tormentor could desire. Torture, the pillory, 
degradation and certain death distilled slowly, drop by drop. And if that were you, if you knew that that was facing tomorrow, wouldn't that in the slightest cause you some concern, cause you some pause, just say, you know, if I keep going down this path, I'm going to face this. But if I change course now, I can avoid all of that. I can just not deal with it at all. And Jesus is facing this. The, the, the day before this is going to unfold, but when he faced, I hope you see that in the text, when Jesus faced the terror of the cross, which of course we see in a much more dramatic fashion in the garden of Gethsemane with Jesus sweating uh, drops of blood. He's just so agonized by this thought. But even in the face of this, Jesus remained committed to serving and loving his people. Committed to serving and loving his followers. Because Jesus knew it was only through his death that his followers could have life. It's only by his suffering that they could be healed. And it's only as Jesus is humiliated that you and I today can be exalted and experience that abundant life that Jesus promised us. This is the God we serve. This leads us to the second overwhelming darkness, and that is betrayal by Judas. You see this in verses 3 to 6, but also in verses 21 to 23. Verse 3, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. Judas went to the chief priest and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. And then Jesus declares, verse 21, after giving out the, uh, the elements, the bread and the, the wine, verse 21, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Now, of course, we know that the crucifixion is a massive uh, moment in the Gospels and in the life of Jesus. But before you get to that point, Jesus would first be betrayed. And it's not just, this is the thing about all that Jesus suffered. It's not just the clear obvious pain that was inflicted upon him on the cross that he suffered, right? Because those are from his enemies. The, a, a more at-home pain that he experienced was the betrayal and heartache from those closest to him. Right? There's physical pain, but there's also relational pain as well, which I'm sure everyone here could attest to the fact that no matter how hard the physical pain is in life, there's something more piercing about relational pain that cuts to the soul. In verse 21, the, the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine on the table. And at the table in, in John chapter 13, verse 21, we see um, Jesus, it says, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit. Again, another acknowledgement of what Jesus' inner condition is. After Jesus had been talking to the disciples, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Now here's the thing about Judas's betrayal. It's one of those 
kind of weird things in the Bible. How do you reconcile that in light of God's goodness, his love, his plan? I simply say, according to Acts 1.16, Judas's betrayal happened under the sovereign plan of God. That's quite clear if you want to look at that verse later, Acts 1.16. But also in Psalm 41, verse 9, this was actually prophesied in the scriptures beforehand, in the Old Testament. And as John chapter 6, verse 64 says, Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. You know, he knew who would betray him, but he also knew the simple reality, somebody is going to betray me. But even though this fit into God's sovereign plan, and even though Jesus knew all of this, it does not in any way minimize or erase the pain of it actually happening. You can attest to this in your own life. If you know there's a horrible medical procedure or something that's right around the corner, it doesn't in any way minimize the pain, the real pain, the real suffering you experience in the moment. So just because Jesus is sovereign, just because it fits into his plan, you can't think, oh, this doesn't bother Jesus then, no. Because Jesus is fully, truly human. And he is a man who built relationship with Judas over about three years of a time span. And betrayal, as you know, it's easily one of the worst relational experiences you can have in life. Betrayal, it's not the thing that it, it pierces home more so is because it's by somebody close to you. Right? We're not talking about what your enemies do, what you, the people you don't like do. This is somebody whom you love, whom you enjoy, whom you've built a close relationship with over the years. There's loyalty, there's commitment. But as you know, betrayal is the breaking of that trust. As one person said, it's the antithesis of love and faithfulness. Because you see, as betrayal oftentimes entails, rather than treasuring and valuing that friendship, that relationship, betrayal is all about finding delight in something else or someone else. And then you break that to go pursue that other thing. And this is quite evident with what happened with Judas. There was that relationship with Jesus. He was one of the 12, but here, and as we other hints throughout the gospels, we know Judas had a nasty love, greedy love for money. And we know infamously that Judas sold his soul for 30 pieces of silver. He found more delight in money than he did in the Lord himself. And when experiencing betrayal from a human standpoint, one psychologist said that the effects of betrayal include shock, loss and grief, morbid preoccupation, damaged self-esteem, self-doubting and anger. In church, in Jesus's humanity, he had to have experienced some of these things, if not all of them from somebody who was close, somebody whom Jesus loved. Because as we'll see, as Jesus does the whole, the Last Supper encounter, Jesus still pursues him. He still offers him that bread, as, as we see in the other gospels. But Judas still refuses it. Though this was right around the corner, Jesus did not back away. He did not cower in fear. Instead, he remains committed to loving and serving his people. He was committed to seeing that the promises of God would be fulfilled. Because he knows, Jesus knows, that only 
if God's promises are fulfilled, can we have life? And Jesus is committed to seeing us thrive, to seeing us prosper. And Jesus knew that he had to go through this because of his great love for you and I. This is the God we serve. And lastly, the denial by Peter, verses 31 to 34. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Let's rewind a little bit. Peter is a man who was personally chosen by Christ. Is a man who is personally entrusted by Jesus to do great ministry to be a, a great spokesperson for the kingdom. But he, and he also, as you, we see in the Gospels, he exemplified strong leadership skills. But also early in the Gospel, we see this in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus showed mercy to Peter's family by healing his mother-in-law. So in other words, we don't know if Peter firsthand experienced a, a physical healing like that, but we do know Peter experienced a personal touch of Jesus's mercy in that way, because it, he healed his mother-in-law. So in a, in a sense, Peter had this kind of personal indebtedness. Oh, you, you did this for my family? Lord, I'm here to serve you. And of course, we also know Peter is the one who famously responded to Jesus when he asked, who do people say that I am? And then of course, who do you say that I am? Peter is the one who responded, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Great theology off of his lips. Perhaps most notably, Peter was in the inner three, right? There's the 12, but there's also the inner three, Peter, James, and John. Peter was one of the few who actually went up with Jesus, the Mount of Transfiguration and saw all that happened with Moses and Elijah. So to say the least, Peter had a strong connection with Jesus. Peter boldly declared, as we see in verse 33, Luke 22, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Not only is there past uh, closeness, past faithfulness, but in the present, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Matthew 26, 33 and verse 35, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. In John 13, verse 37, I will lay down my life for you. But Jesus being fully, truly God, he knows the fickle heart of Peter and he declares, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. You see, in Jesus's most isolating, desperate time in life, his closest friends, those whom Jesus declared as being closer to him than his own family. If you love me, if you follow me, if you have faith in me, you are closer to me than my mother, my brothers, my sisters, my father. There's a, a particular type of closeness when we have a relationship with Jesus. 
So for those people who were in a sense closer than his own blood relatives, they abandoned him. Particularly Peter, they, he denied him. This wasn't just an accidental thing from Peter. Just Peter, in a moment of temptation and being tripped up, you know Peter denied Jesus three times, which is an emphatic way of stressing the point that Jesus, or that Peter broke his promises of commitment. This wasn't just something that fell off of his tongue. Three separate occasions, Peter had the opportunity to confess, to repent, but three times he doubled down to the point of cursing, saying, no, I don't know that man. But it's not just that. Luke records a significant detail. Right after Peter denied Jesus for the third time and the rooster crowed, Luke 22, verse 61. I don't know if you're ever familiar with this verse, but Luke 22, 61. Well, let me read verse 60. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Peter did this right in front of Jesus. I don't necessarily know Jesus was literally right beside him, 10, 20, 30 yards away. Scripture doesn't say, but we do know that they looked, Jesus looked straight at Peter. And undoubtedly, Peter looked at him with this shame and this regret. But here's the point. Even though Jesus would have to face this heart wrenching denial. Jesus remained committed to serving and loving his people. For his love is greater than all of our sin. His love, Jesus's love is more powerful than our broken promises. Jesus's love is stronger than our fickle intentions. And Jesus's love is greater than the darkness of our hearts. Because The reality is you and I are like Peter more often than we'd like to admit. We have good intentions. We love the Lord. We follow him. But how many times, moments of temptation, we deny him verbally, perhaps, perhaps more so through disobedience. Even though we deny him, he keeps pursuing us. He keeps praying for us. This is the God we serve. So dear church, though Jesus faced overwhelming pressures of darkness, he remained committed to loving and serving his people. Jesus did not throw his hands up in defeat. He did not walk away or abandon his followers. In the final moments of his life, as we'll unpack next week, Jesus remained committed to caring for his people. And tangibly, one way he did that is by instituting communion for their benefit. And today, if you are a Christian, if you do follow Jesus, it does not matter how dark your sin is. It doesn't matter how far you have strayed from the straight and narrow. And it doesn't matter in the future tense how far you might stray. Nothing can stop the relentless love of Jesus from pursuing you. Nothing can. And today, also, if you are exploring Christianity, please know that Jesus is extremely patient with you. 
2 Peter 3, 9 tells us that God is patient with all people because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. And that is, Jesus invites all of us to come to him to taste and see that he is good. This is in part what communion is about. And I hope that you see and savor from this text, I hope you see and savor from this text, Jesus's commitment to loving and serving us, no matter the pressure, no matter the forces that he faced, because this is the God that we serve. Will you join me in prayer? And we'll, we'll close with the doxology. Father, may your kingdom come. Jesus, may we delight in your love. And Holy Spirit, may we stand upon the truth of your word. It's in the name of the Son of God that we pray. Amen.